to the Ryan Hickey Show. We're out exclusively right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We appreciate you starting your week with us right here as we roll along until 11 a.m. Eastern. And my goodness gracious, it's always fun to do a show. I'm not going to, you know, uh, pretend this is, you know, hard work or anything. I always look forward to doing these shows, but especially when you come off of weekends what we just had these shows become all that much more exciting, all that much more fun to do. We had a, a great Masters weekend. Congrats to Scotty Scheffler on winning uh, his first career green jacket. We'll get into that here in a second. We have the NBA regular season coming to a conclusion yesterday. Now we are set for the playoffs to start. If you want to include the playing tournament as part of the playoffs, baseball is underway. Opening day was either Thursday or Friday, depending on when your team played. So it is a tremendous time right now to be a sports fan. There's so much going on. So it was a great weekend. Hopefully yours was exciting, was fun, was relaxing. It was everything you wanted it to be and more. So we got a lot to get to here. You just heard it. it was a very busy weekend. And so we got a lot to react to and get you set for the week coming on up. So as a reminder, we are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Now, whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. So let's get into it. Let's get into the Masters, the the biggest uh, news story coming out of the weekend. Scotty Scheffler, uh, for the most part, does dominate the Masters, has a tremendous weekend. Not really many people um, giving him a real scare, giving him a real run uh, for the most part, and he does win by three strokes or uh, over Rory McIlroy. And for me, my biggest takeaway, my biggest impression uh, of Scotty Scheffler's performance this past weekend was the poise, was the consistent poise he showed all weekend. And that's the biggest thing I point to when you look as to why he won his first career green jacket. It's not his driver. It's not his putting ability. It, to me, was all about his poise, his ability to stay cool in the moment, not panic, not overreact, and instead, just continue to take the task at hand and focus one shot at a time. I know it's cliche, but especially in tournaments of this magnitude, that poise, that mental toughness really is the difference between winning and losing. Because when you look at, if we look at golf as a microcosm of life, right? It really is because obviously there are plenty of highs. And right now, Scotty Scheffler is on one. He just won his fourth event fourth event this year in the last six starts he's made it's or, or seven starts he's made it's incredible though when you win four out of your last six tournaments you are on a a heater um that is really unparalleled to anything else so when the highs are high you feel like you're on top of the world it is the best feeling ever there's not much that can take you down but as we know golf especially just like life at any point it can come back and humble you 
whether it's one round, whether it's one hole, whether it's one shot, you feel like you could be on top of the world and one thing goes awry and it could absolutely lead to your downfall. Life has a funny way of humbling everyone at any point in life, no matter what. And the biggest thing about life, as cliche as it sounds, is about perseverance, is about kind of pushing through and staying cool under pressure. Not allowing the moment, whether it's in golf, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's at your job, not allowing kind of that moment to overwhelm you and take you down. And for Scotty Shefford, to his credit, his entire weekend was not about panicking under pressure. I feel like it's sometimes almost easier said than done. Oh, just, just focus on the next shot. Don't let the outside noise distract you. But it is extremely tough to do. Golf is a very lonesome sport. I mean, we just saw it on the flip side in the same group Scotty Sheffield was with yesterday. Cam Smith. He was up and down all through the front nine. And we saw every time he got a little bit of momentum, anytime he got closer to Scotty, what happened? There was some sort of shot. There was some sort of moment that really set Cam Smith back. And we saw it on 12 when he puts it in the creek. There you go. Basically, the round's over. The round's over. Coming off of a high of a nice birdie. Okay, he's chipping away, coming on back. And like we just said, golf has a, a funny way of humbling you at the at the times you expect it the least. Par 312, boom, right in the drink. We saw Cam Smith implode, by the way, after that. He's still not out of it when you dump it in the creek. But some bad, you know, follow-up shots. Couldn't really get it together. We saw in 13, basically, he just kind of Almost just went into an effort mode and just started gambling, um, trying to scramble back in and try to get desperate. You can see quickly how fast things unravel, especially in golf, especially just in the span of one hole. So to see Scotty Scheffler kind of almost be um, stoic all throughout the round is impressive. And especially even more impressive when you hear him talking after the round, after he's won the green jacket. He was talking about what his morning leading up to that Sunday round was like. And it sounded like hell on earth. He's talking about how he broke down crying Sunday morning because he felt like he wasn't ready for the moment because he felt overwhelmed by the pressure of him going into Sunday at the Masters with a lead, with the expectation that he is going to win. Despite the fact how he is playing the best golf of his career, despite the fact he had a comfortable lead going into Sunday again, which is something, think about it, Every single person who has ever played golf dreams of. Any of us, even when we were kids, who dreamt of, of playing on the PJ Tour, always playing in the backyard, maybe on the driving range, pretending like we are at Augusta, you would kill, you would sign up to have, you know, a three-shot lead going into Sunday. And you hear Scotty talking about after the round how it was almost paralyzing, that pressure. That moment that he felt waking up on Sunday morning. So the nerves again are real. And to his credit, he reminded me a lot of like a duck, like a swan. Cool up top, right? Anytime we see what swans or ducks swimming in the water, they're cool. They're calm. They look like they know what they're doing. They're confident. But as we know, underneath the water, those feet are swimming. They're kicking. They are moving. They are churning. But up top, everything is cool. Everything's a-okay. And you hear Scheffler talk about it. Outside, from our perspective, watching him on TV, or if you were lucky enough to be there yesterday, watching him in person, he looked like Joe Cool. Okay, shot in the woods, no problem, I'll figure it out. In the bunker, okay, well, you know, we'll move on from there. But he was saying inside, 
it is just, you know, you are filled with nerves. Everything is, is you know, everything is working against you. It is really, really tough. And like, again, we just saw with Cam Smith in his same, you know, his partner in the final round. It is very easy to have the moment. It is very easy to allow the pressure around you to impact your play, to get to you, to allow the outside distractions to impact your game. Like golf is funny because it's not like you're competing really against anyone else. You're almost competing against the course, right? It's not like in baseball where you're facing a different pitcher every night and, you know, one guy has a fastball you just can't handle or the curveball is just too much or football. If you're a defensive back, sometimes wide receiver is just too fast, nothing you can do. But sometimes things are out of your control. But with golf, it really is just almost you versus yourself, right? The course is the same. Everyone else is playing the same dimensions, there's physically nothing standing in your way in terms of having to overcome a linebacker running at you or having to hit a four-seam fastball coming in at 100 miles an hour. A lot of it is mental. And that's the reason why golf is the hardest game to play. Because mentally, it is tough to stay locked in for 18 holes for four and a half hours a day and do it four consecutive days. So that's for me why it's so impressive to see Scotty Scheffler at 25 years old, mind you, be able to keep his cool and not allow a lot of the outside noise, a lot of the outside pressure to impact his play. Because let's be honest too, especially in the front nine and even at points throughout the week, he invited the pressure to come crumble his way. It's like he was playing lights out where every single drive was striped, every single iron shot was perfect, every single putt he was draining. He was dancing in and out of pressure and in and out of sticky situations all round yesterday. And that to me is what is so impressive about him finishing as strong as he did is because one, he did not allow any one bad shot to impact either the hole or the round. And any single time he got himself in trouble, he was able to stay cool, stay calm enough to get himself out of trouble. Like even look how this started, right? We, we, we heard him talk about kind of the, the mental crunch and, and the mental stress he felt early Sunday morning before the round even started. So he had kind of that obstacle to overcome before any golf was played then the first two holes you par but you see your partner and cam smith birdie birdie all of a sudden your lead is down to one just like that and then on three you're scrambling around when you put your drive in the pine straw and your second shot's not what you want it it is easy to panic to start you know start scrambling and all of a sudden start getting out of your game but instead of panicking again Instead of allowing the moment and the pressure to basically paralyze you in your play and get out of your comfort zone, Scotty Scheffler kept things cool. Hits that chip in from three, and that kind of settled everything down. And then going on forward, whether it was a bad drive that went awry, whether it was a second shot that you know wasn't where he wanted it to be, whether it was a tough putt that he couldn't drain, He didn't allow any of those other bad shots, again, to impact his round, to really get him off track. Because he opened the door at times for Cam Smith or guys like Rory McIlroy, who was on fire, to make a run. And every single time he was in a tough situation, he was able to get out of it. That was my biggest impression. That was my biggest takeaway. Any single time the pressure was there, Scheffler never got rattled. It's so much easier said than done. It is so easy on TV to sit there and be like, oh, just hit the shot. You're 100 yards out, you know, just just swing easy and just put it five yards to the pin. It is so easy to sit there 
and just say, oh, make this shot. But the pressure is real. The moment is real. And especially in a tournament like the Masters, where there is so much pomp and circumstance, where there's so much history, where there's so much significance, this is the one that everyone wants to win. And once you get there, sometimes you don't even think you're ready for it. So to Scotty Scheffler's credit, again, my biggest impression was how he was able to keep his game the same and basically be able mentally to never let anything around him impact what he was doing. Way easier said than done. But nothing was going to take him down yesterday, which goes back to his poise and at 25 years old, which is to me goes back to just how impressive overall his victory was. It may have felt at times like he was in cruise control and no one was going to catch him, but trust me, we saw it yesterday. We hear him now after the round talk about the nerves and how much it impacted him. That was way easier said than done, and he really mimicked like a swan yesterday. Cool up top, cool in the exterior, inside though, really panicking, really working hard to get things done. Not easy to stay that stoic and, and that cool, but Scotty did. That's why he won his first career jacket. So congrats to him. Fun Masters uh, for sure. I know it wasn't the drama maybe we were hoping for. To me, I still love it anyway. Uh, either way, it was a lot of fun watching this weekend. And also too quick, I just want to give a few Tiger thoughts here because the last time I talked to you was Thursday, right? And we were talking about Tiger Woods expectations. And for me, my only expectations for Tiger Woods uh, this Masters weekend was for have him have him tee off at 11.04 like he was supposed to. And then also have him finish the 36 holes. I didn't think he was going to win. I didn't think it was going to be contention. I'll be honest. I didn't think he was going to make the cut. I really didn't. My expectations were basically slim to none for Tiger Woods. But in part, that was me trying to just enjoy the moment that Tiger is back more than anything else. I didn't want to put expectations on it and open myself up for disappointment. I thought we got a little carried away overall on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, leading into the Masters because you hear Tiger Woods say he you know, believes he can win, and that, I thought, really set expectations up where people were going to be disappointed. And as we saw, he made the cut, which is better than I ever could have expected. We saw the weekend, things uh, kind of went off the rails a little bit. So I don't really care that he finished plus 13 in the weekend, for me, honestly. I think the biggest uh, impressive part and the biggest takeaway is that he was able to play four rounds of golf consecutively in a major and have his body at least be able to make it through. Right, and we can't say hold up because obviously we saw the, the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, really things went you know uh, off the rails and he really struggled. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's just not in golf shape. You know, He's still working his body back. He could play practice rounds. He could even play one round, like we saw on Thursday, well, where he was minus one um, coming in, into Friday. But the biggest grind for golf and, the, and these majors is the four consecutive days back-to-back-to-back-to-back. We saw Tiger was not able to do that. But that's fine. That's okay. He still has to work his way back. And for me, it was just an awesome sign. It was just a massive win that he was able to physically play four rounds back-to-back-to-back-to-back. We saw he already committed to the Open at St. Andrews. So that's good that he's going to play in another major. So he's already kind of getting ready to go. Who knows between here and then if he's going to play again. But the fact that just Tiger is feeling good enough to play four days in a row and is now already committing to majors, that to me is a big win for golf and a big win for him. So I don't really care that he finished 23 strokes from the leader. The fact he's able to to, to play four days in a row is a, a big win, a massive win for myself. So when we do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, the NBA regular season is complete. It's in the books. We have the play-in tournament Tuesday and Wednesday, but for the most part, we have 20 teams now that will at least be, or at least have a chance 
to win a title. How many of those teams, though, actually realistically have a chance to win the championship? I'll tell you my answer when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hopefully, if you're watching on the stream, you really can't see um, an accident I got myself into yesterday. A really stupid accident. Well, not really accident, but just stupid in terms of putting my face in harm's way. I have a little bump here, a little bruise on the bridge of my nose. Stupidest way to get injured, honestly. It's actually embarrassing. I was looking in the, uh, at my parents, I say, looking in the mailbox. All of a sudden, the, you know, it's one of those lift mailbox covers. I'm like, oh, I'm just peeking in. I don't even know why. It was a Sunday. Mail doesn't get delivered on Sunday. I was just outside looking for something to do. I'm like, oh, just take a peek. What the hell? Take a peek in. For whatever reason, the, the top slips out of my hand. Boom. Bangs me right on the nose. As if I didn't, you know, need my nose to get any bigger. There it is right there. Nice little uh, battle scar. So if anyone asks going forward here, look, you see this, you see the other guy. All right, just remember that. You should see what the other guy looks like because rough and tumble. Don't tell anyone it was, it was a mailbox. I kind of got the last laugh for sure. We do welcome you back in here to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Red Network. Yesterday... April 10th was the NBA regular season finale for the league. And now 10 teams eliminated. And as we get ready for the play-in tournament to start on Tuesday and Wednesday, we have 20 teams left that are that actually have a chance to win the title in terms of competing for it. right? But realistically, we know 20 teams don't realistically have a chance to win the championship. No disrespect to the uh, San Antonio Spurs or the Charlotte Hornets. Um or even the Cleveland Cavaliers, the injuries that they have gone through. A lot of these teams that are in the playoffs or even in the postseason, we'll say before the playoffs technically start, don't have a chance to actually win the title. So how many teams, realistically, can win the championship this year? I think just three. I think out of the the field of 20 that is set right now as we sit here on Monday morning, I think there's just three teams that can legitimately win the NBA championship. I think it's the Suns, I think it's the Bucks, and I think it's the Celtics. That's it. No Grizzlies, no Jazz, no Sixers, no Nets, no Heat. We'll dive into the three teams first, and I'll explain why I also eliminated a lot of those other teams. Let's start with the Suns. Because realistically, the Suns are, the, I think, the only team that could even have a chance to come out of the West. Because there's no team, there's no other team right now in the Western Conference that I think is beating the Suns four times in a seven-game series. They have been the best team in the NBA this year. They have been the most dominant team. From wire to wire this season. They started off insanely hot. They are finishing very hot. This is a team that really, for the most part, hasn't even had a lull. And the biggest reason for their consistent Game 1 to Game 82 dominance is that they are insanely efficient. They are extremely good on both ends of the floor. On the offensive end and, just as importantly, on the defensive end. Like The the Suns are one of two teams in the NBA this year. They are top five in both offensive and defensive rating. So their ability to get it done on both ends of the floor is not only impressive, it's imperative to winning. Like say what you want about the NBA, especially when it comes to the playoffs, about it being a star league and it being a scoring league. If you can't get a stop, you aren't winning. 
And the Suns are not only able to score with some of the best teams in the NBA, they are able to get stops like some of the best teams in the NBA. So good luck to any team in the West that is going to have a tough time slowing down the Suns and also, by the way, having a tough time scoring yourself. That is not a recipe for success. And I don't think any team is going to be able to do both in order to beat the Suns in a series. And also, by the way, in case the game does get close, in case a team like the Grizzlies or the Warriors give the Suns a run for their money, this is massive composting in time, the Suns are literally the most clutch team in the NBA. Statistically, a clutch game is a game within five points with five minutes left. The Suns are the most efficient team and have the most wins in the, in the clutch. So they are, again, not only a team that's front-running, not only a team that can get out quick and kind of run you out of the gym, they are also a team where if you keep it close, they execute down the stretch, whether it's Chris Paul, whether it's uh, Mikael Bridges, whether it's Devin Booker, whether it's DeAndre Ayton, Jay Crowder, they have different guys that can make shots and get stops. So this team, to me, is absolutely coming out of the West, and I don't see any other team that's going to slow them down. And the scariest part of this Phoenix team, by the way, is that they are still a team on the rise. Like, this is still a team that, one, got better from last year to this year and is still improving and still has even more room to grow. Like, you look at what Devin Booker has done this year. He has grown into an MVP caliber player. This season, he's averaging the most points per game of his career and he's shooting the highest from three this year. He has continued to improve at age 25. He still has more to grow. DeAndre Eaton has played the most consistent season of his career. This man wanted a, a contract extension last offseason, didn't get it, and now he is playing like a man who wants to prove everyone wrong, who wants to get the biggest contract he possibly can. He has been insanely good, but not only good. Eaton has shown flashes to the first three years of his career. He has been consistently good, which has always been a little bit of a struggle with DeAndre's game. But this year, he has made that improvement, and he has made... Um, that a, a, a strong part of his game, consistency. Mikael, uh, Mikael Bridges has a real argument to be Defensive Player of the Year. He's been tremendous on the wing. And Chris Paul, obviously, he's been the incredible leader um, for this team and is doing what he does best, setting up the offense, leading the NBA so far in assists. And the, the other thing I like about the Suns a lot is that we have seen teams like, let's say, the Nets or the Lakers rely on one or two players. It is a star league after all. Even the Sixers uh, with Joel Embiid you are heavily reliant on your star to get the job done, right? We still see the NBA teams are built by kind of leaning on one player to carry them. That's not the case here with the Suns. Because you could argue, you know, Devin Booker has the most talent, but you could argue in terms of importance, Chris Paul, because of his leadership, because of his ability to set up the offense, because of his instincts and his smarts, is the most important player to the Suns. Well, if you remember, about two months ago, right, he fractured his thumb and was supposed to miss... Six to eight weeks. He ended up missing just 15 games. But in those 15 games, the Suns went 11-4 and four in that stretch. So they have showed you again, even when someone goes down like Chris Paul, if you remember last year, he got hurt early in the playoffs as well, uh, hurt his shoulder and, and was kind of working through that. The Suns don't get derailed if one player goes down. Again, 11-4 and four with their most important player in Chris Paul, missing 15 games. That is impressive. So when you look around the uh, the rest of the West, I don't see a team that's taking them down. 
I like the Grizzlies a lot. I really do. John Moran just came back from his knee injury. That scares me a tiny bit. But I think the Suns' talent and cohesiveness right now is better than where the Grizzlies are at. To me, the Warriors are too much of a mess where now Steph Curry's question and status for Game 1 of the playoffs is up in the air. The Jazz, to me, are a team that's not built for the playoffs. We've seen this team now for a few years consecutively have strong regular seasons. And as soon as the playoffs come around, Rudy Gobert gets... um, gets exposed defensively, and this is just not a team that is built for uh, playoff caliber basketball. I don't think the Mavericks just have enough, especially now with the scary injury of Luka Doncic hurting his calf. We'll see kind of what the prognosis is, but you talk about the worst timed injury. Luka now could miss significant time, a few weeks maybe, depending on how his calf heals. We'll get more of a uh, prognosis today and more of a timeline today, but that's not a great time for the Mavericks. The Nuggets are too injury depleted. They're not going to have Michael Porter Jr. back. They're not going to have Jamal Murray back. So when you look around the Western Conference, I don't see a team that's beating the Suns. This team is the best team in the NBA. They do everything right. I think that's going to continue into the playoffs, and they are going to their second consecutive finals. There's no team coming out of the West for me other than the Phoenix Suns. That's why, to me, they are not only a, a team that's legitimately going to win, uh, you know, have a chance to win a title. They, they, to me, are my title pick. I know, really going out on a limb here. A lot of people are going to pick the Suns. It's hard not to pick against them. So I think, for me, the Suns are winning the finals. I think they're getting to the finals. And they are the only team in the West, in my mind, that has a legitimate chance, that actually has a realistic chance of winning the title this year. So one team in the West, two teams in the East. We'll start with the Bucs. For me, the Bucs are the best team in the East. I know right now with where they are um, stationed in terms of standing-wise, they're third. But I think they are the best team in the East going into the playoffs because they are doing what championship teams do, peaking at the right moment. They didn't get off to a hot start. Even middle of the year, it's not, it wasn't like they were playing their best basketball. They have really rounded into form nicely to where coming out of the All-Star break, they're playing some of their best basketball. 10-3 and three now to finish the season, coming out of the All-Star break. You have Giannis, since that break, averaging 31.1 points per game, has thrown himself into the MVP consideration um, after, again, a slower start than, let's say, what we're used to. But he has really, again, taken his game to the next level this last six weeks or so. I think the biggest thing about the Bucs that I like um, coming from you know this year compared to last year, because I'll be honest, I was a Bucks doubter last year. I picked against them, um, especially early on in the series against the Nets where they lost game five when Kevin Durant had that insanely miraculous game by himself where James Harden was hurt and Kyrie Irving was hurt and the Bucks still lost. I was a Bucks doubter since then. But the biggest advantage they have and the biggest thing that changes my opinion from last year to this year, obviously they won the title, it helps, but the confidence that comes with winning a title. The confidence of climbing the mountain, getting it done, and knowing, hey, we can do it. We've done it once before. We can absolutely do it again. I thought at times last year, and again, especially in Game 5 in that second-round series against the Nets, I thought this team lacked confidence. They looked like, and there was times where they kind of had that, oh, here we go again feeling. If you remember, the Bucks really, for the most part, have not had a lot of postseason success up to last year. They were up 2-0 the year the Raptors won the uh, title in 2019. They're up 2-0 in that series, and Toronto won four straight games. The bubble year, the following year, they got smoked by the Heat. Smoked. Embarrassed. Giannis won his second consecutive MVP award, and they got run out of the gym by the Heat in the playoffs. There has been some bad moments for the Bucs in the postseason, and like I said, at times last year, even though they, they demolished the Heat in the first round last year, in that net series, it's still kind of like, 
uh, here we go again. It's kind of, you know, kind of living that nightmare over and over and over again. But to their credit, they pushed through. They overcame that feeling and won a title. And now this year, I think they bring that bravado. They bring that championship swagger where they're going to the postseason, not scared of anyone. There's a lot of talk and a lot of discussion about teams up top jockeying to try to avoid the Nets in the first round. Oh, do we try to do we want to win and face them? Do you want to lose? You know, talking about position seating. I know Milwaukee had a lot of players yesterday, but to me, they seem like a team right now that doesn't care who they play. They have confidence no matter they if they face the Nets again, if they face the Heat, if they play if they play the Celtics. This the to me the Bucks have a legitimate advantage in terms of confidence. Obviously, they have the talent to do so as we've seen last year. So for me, I like the Bucks a lot. I think we're going to get a rematch of Suns-Bucks last year. I think the Suns are going to win this one. But I do think we'll have a rematch in the finals of Bucks and Suns because I love right now where Milwaukee's at. The only team that could spoil that, I think. The only team that could ruin a, a Suns-Bucks part two is the Celtics. Because we talk about peaking at the right time like we just did for the for the Bucks. Right now, there is no team that is peaking more right now than the Boston Celtics. They are playing literally their best basketball when it matters the most. On January 6th, if we go back to that, so two months into the season, or three months into the season, they were 18-21. and 21. On January 6th, 18-21. and 21. Since that time, from January 6th to April 10th, they have gone 33-10. and 33-10! and 10. In that stretch, they have been by far the hottest team in the NBA, and we talked about defense. Right? What do we talk about with the Suns as to why I'm so impressed? Why I think they're why I think they're coming out of the West easily and winning the title? Because they score at will, but also most importantly, they get a ton of stops as well. They are elite offensively and they are elite defensively. The Celtics are an elite defensive team. They have the best defensive rating in the uh, in the NBA this season. They have. You know, tremendous long wings in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, so they can both score and score well, especially we know Jason Tatum can really erupt for uh, some big games. But they also defend and lock down opponents as well. Now, the loss of Robert Williams is a killer, and especially now, most likely they'll play the Nets, right? The, the Celtics are the two seed. The Nets are playing the Cavs in the playing uh, game on uh, Tuesday night. I expect the Nets to win that game, so we should get Nets-Celtics in round number one. The loss of Robert Williams, because it's believed that timeline-wise he could and should return maybe by the second round of the postseason, dealing with a meniscus injury. That's huge, obviously, for Boston. But I do think even though they're playing the Nets shorthanded, they still have... Um, I still think they'll beat them. I do. The way right now the Celtics are playing, the confidence that they are carrying themselves with, the ability to score but also get stops uh, going against a Nets team that plays no defense at all, I think it's going to pay off. I think the Celtics are going to beat the Nets in round number one. And I think the Celtics pose the biggest challenge to the Bucks in terms of Milwaukee getting to back-to-back finals. I think they will prevail, Milwaukee that is. But I do think the only challenger that Milwaukee has to worry about, the only team that they have to circle and say, this is going to be a tough test for us, is the Boston Celtics. That's it. Because when you look around the rest of the East, to me the Sixers are total frauds. James Harden in the playoffs. Enough said. The Heat, to me, aren't consistent enough on the offensive end that gets you worried. I love Jimmy Butler. I love Kyle Lowry. And that mindset, especially defensively, it's going to be a grinded out series for every team they play. I just don't trust them to get a uh, score enough on the offensive end, especially in half-court offense when games kind of slow down in the postseason. Don't love the heat there. I think the Nets road coming from the plane is going to be too tough because we just talked about it. They're playing the red-hot Celtics, most likely if they beat the Cavs on Tuesday. 
that's going to be, you know, an insanely brutal matchup. Then probably you take on the, the Bucks in round two, and then maybe the Heat in, in the Eastern Conference Finals. That's a, a dogged, dogged schedule for the Nets just to get to the finals. I think it's too hard. I don't think they're making it out of the first round personally. But I think the road for Brooklyn is too hard. The Bulls, I mean, <laughs> come on. By far the biggest pretender in the NBA. So I'll look around the East as we get set for the postseason here. I just think there's only two teams that legitimately can win the title this season. I think it's the Bucs. I think they'll get into the finals. But the only challenger, the only team that could stand in the way of Milwaukee of getting to their second consecutive finals is the Celtics. That's it. So we look around in totality. I think there's just three teams. That's it. Just three teams that could legitimately win the finals this year. I think it's the Suns. I think it's the Bucs and the Celtics. That's it. How about you? How many teams in your mind can truly win a championship? Are you higher on the Grizzlies or the the Warriors than I am? Are you higher on the Sixers or the Nets? Do you believe in them more than me? I'd love to hear your thoughts and why you are either taking one of my teams out of consideration or adding another team to the mix. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how many teams can win a title as we get set for the postseason to start tomorrow night. So you'd love to hear your thoughts. You can comment on many different platforms. If you're listening on Twitter... We're at at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter or WWSRN underscore radio. Click on the live stream that is on both of those Twitter handles. Comment right there on the live on the live stream. We'll, we'll get your thoughts. If you're on Facebook, you can check us out at Worldwide Sports Network. Type that in Facebook. Throw us a like while you're there as well. Don't be shy. And comment on the, uh, the live stream right there. And we're also on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So how many teams in your mind can win the finals this season? We'll get your thoughts. And I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into those three teams I just mentioned. The Suns, the Bucks, the Celtics. I think all three of those teams, in my mind, at least having the best chance to win the title, also does serve as something now going forward to watch. Is there going to be the death of the super team? We'll discuss that when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 20 minutes from now, what a disaster the Lakers are. As we know, this is I mean, this has been a known topic, really, even since before the season started. Really, we can go back to when they made that tra- trade for Russell Westbrook. But last night, seeing how the season ended, and seeing right now the future of Frank Vogel basically being treated like a, a rag doll here and almost basically finding out he's going to be fired in the post-game press conference. It just goes to show you the, not only what a total mess the Lakers are, why things are not getting better anytime soon. We'll discuss that in 20 minutes or really 15 minutes from now at the top of the hour. But we just were talking about teams in terms of actually being in contention. The Lakers are nowhere close to winning a title this year. That's for sure. They've been eliminated. But the three teams I think that can win a title this year, the only three teams that have a shot to win the Lyra Bryant Trophy, I think are the Suns, the Bucks, the Celtics. I think those three teams are important because they all, I think, could lead to the death of super teams in the NBA. Because when you look at the teams, I think, that have the best chance of winning, those three teams have a lot in common. 
right? The Bucks, the Celtics, the Suns. When you look at what they do well, all of them are deep teams. Right, they're not relying on one star player. They have multiple contributors in their starting five. They have deep benches as well. They're good defensively. All three can get stops. All three are able to, you know, again, slow teams down and stop what they're doing and not just have it be a free pass for a two or a three. Like I said, they have multiple contributors. So not only are they deep, but they have different guys who can step up on a given uh, on a given night and you know put the ball in the basket. And they are really not relying on one player, right? The, the Los Angeles Lakers need LeBron James. They need Anthony Davis. The Brooklyn Nets need Kyrie Irving, and they especially need Kevin Durant. The Celtics, the Bucks, and the Suns, yeah, they need their best players. You need Devin Booker. You need Giannis. You need Jason Tatum. But they also, when those guys either are out or get hurt, have the ability to rally together as a team and pick up either their hurt or struggling teammate and still win games. Like we mentioned, the Suns were 11-4 without Chris Paul in a 15-game stretch. You can survive if one of your most important players goes down. And everything we just mentioned, all of those things those teams have in common, which makes them championship contenders this season, those are all the characteristics that super teams like the Nets, like the Lakers, if you want to include the Sixers in this when they traded for James Harden, those are all the characteristics that those teams don't have. And now, if you are looking around the the landscape of the NBA, the NBA, like many sports, right, is a copycat league. We say that mostly about the NFL, whether it's offensive schemes or or personnel or head coaching hirings. We see a lot of NFL teams copy what good winning teams do. That's just not a one-off or that's just not only specific to the NFL. NBA teams do that as well. We saw LeBron James basically create super teams and now change the way teams think by when he went to Miami and he teamed up with Chris Bosh uh, and Dwayne Wade. Now, after that, teams thought, all right, how can we take these guys down? Well, we're going to create a super team of our own. And now we saw whether it was in Golden State when they landed Kevin Durant, whether it's in Brooklyn with, with when they had the big threesome of KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. We have seen super teams develop throughout the NBA now in terms of that being the go-to model of winning. But I think now that it's kind of flipped back reverse and we are seeing super teams struggle, I think now we are going to start to see more teams build themselves in the eye of the Suns, in the eye of the Bucks, in the eye of the Celtics, which is drafting, developing, and then sure, maybe make one free agent or big trade splash to kind of be that finishing piece. But I think we're going to see less and less teams basically sell the farm in order to get, let's say, a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant or a James Harden on your team, but then sell so many assets to get them that you have nothing to put around. Because when you look at the Lakers, the Nets, the Celtics, they have star players in LeBron and AD. You have Kyrie and KD. You have Harden and Embiid. And there's not much around the rest of them. Like, they are too reliant. Like, you look at why they haven't had a lot of success recently. They're too reliant on one to two players where if they're either struggling or hurt, the rest of the team can't pick them up because there's no depth. They're too top-heavy. They're poor defensively. There's no other contributors, really, that you can rely on. So there's a lot that goes wrong. It's almost like a house of cards. You build the house of cards. Okay, when LeBron and AD are healthy, okay, fine, it could work. When James Harden is playing some of the best basketball of his career, in the regular season at least, okay, you could win. When Kevin Durant is Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving is playing unconscious, sure, you can you know have a chance to win, but all the other things have to go perfectly with those stars in order for your team to succeed. Because if not, if one thing goes down, whether it's an injury, whether it's lack of defense, whether it's no other contributors outside of those players, whether one of your star players having an off game, 
there's no true way to win a title. So I think now when you start to see the construction of teams that are competing for a championship, how they are built, I think teams are going to start to realize that. And if we even look at recent championship history, now if we look at the teams that have truly won um, titles in the past few years, the Bucks. I would not consider them a super team. They have grown and developed and really made their team um, through the draft. The Raptors, I know they got Kawhi Leonard, but again, that was a tremendous core that was already there, and they were missing the one piece that was Kawhi. Even the Warriors. Now, this one is really tough. I get it because obviously they added Kevin Durant, but I wouldn't even, in terms of uh, in terms of team development, the, putting the Warriors as a super team, yes, you have to with Kevin Durant, but at the same time, they drafted and developed Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green. They had really good depth. They basically kind of got lucky that the salary cap spiked in, in a way that opened up uh, salary cap room for Kevin Durant to come when in normal years that would never happen. So I guess, or I yes, they have a built a super team with Kevin Durant there, but also this is a team that won a title and had you know 73 wins in the two years KD was not there. So I get that, put him over the top, and they won two titles with him there before he got hurt. But they still were built in the eye of draft and development and then got that one player in free agency. Were kind of, were, yeah, when they got lucky to put them over the top. And even the Lakers. Like, we look at the one title the Lakers won with LeBron and AD in LA. They won that title, yes, because both played really well. But they were really elite defensive. They were a top five defensive team in the NBA. They got good contributions from their bench. They were a deep and balanced team. Relying on one to two players, kind of building a super team that is super top-heavy, is not the way you win anymore. Look, you look at, okay, the Lakers right now. Why are they limited? Well, they're limited because they have awful roster construction. There's nothing behind LeBron James. They sold the farm for Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook, so there's no depth. It's basically AARP on the bench with all the older players that they have trying to come in and contribute. It's not working. What a shock. And then when you add injury-riddled now Anthony Davis plus LeBron James whose body's breaking down, when they are hurting out of the lineup, there's no one that could step up, even when LeBron's healthy. There is no player in the NBA that has scored more 30-point or had more 30-point games and losses than LeBron. Think about that. Even when he's playing well, this team is still losing because there's no depth and no talent around him. In part because they have no salary cap room because they made an awful trade for Russell Westbrook. They wanted the star in there between him, AD, and LeBron. All three basically maxed out the cap where you're you know, bargain hunting for Carmelo Anthony and Dwight Howard. It doesn't work. Awful roster construction does not lead to good defense, good depth, and even when injuries, they cannot withstand them. The Sixers sold their soul for James Harden. They sold their soul for a guy who cannot be relied upon in the playoffs. And now you, you trade away a good three-point shooter in Seth Curry. You give away a ton of your draft picks now going forward to where there's not a much there flexibility-wise to try, try to build a lot around Joel Embiid and try to make up for the loss that is inevitably going to be James Harden in the postseason. And you see the Nets. The Nets don't have any reliable scores outside of KD and Kyrie, they play absolutely no defense whatsoever. So even now that they get into the playoffs, I don't trust them to make a stop, which is why I think they're going to go out in the first round. They are horrible defensively. If you can't get stops, you don't have a chance. So a lot of the super teams that have big stars on them are either eliminated from the playoffs, like the Lakers, or I think we'll, be, uh, we'll see early exits in the postseason like the Nets and the Sixers. Why? Because of all the things we just said. They're too top-heavy. They're too reliant on one or two players. They're not good defensively. There's no real depth there. 
I think we're going to see a paradigm shift in team construction in the NBA where less super teams will be formed. And now we're going to see more teams start to construct their rosters based on the draft, based on developing the talent that's there. Then when you have a good young core, two, three, four players, then making a splash in free agency, then making a splash with a big trade to put them over the top. Because if you look now, if you look at all of the contending teams in the NBA, all of the best teams right now in the league, they all have something in common. We just mentioned the Suns, right? The Suns, homegrown in Devin Booker, Mikael Bridges, DeAndre Ayton. Great score in Booker, tremendous defense in Bridges. Uh, DeAndre Ayton is a super athletic big, and then they made the big move uh, in free agency to bring in Chris Paul to be that leader, be that finishing piece. The Grizzlies, number two in the West, one of the most fun, exciting, promising teams in the NBA. Star and John Morant drafted him. Developed guys like Jaron Jackson Jr., They have great wings. They're solid defensively. They have been a team that is built from the draft and has basically been homegrown through development. The Bucs drafted a star. They developed him to be Giannis Antetokounmpo. They have a reliable storm from Chris Middleton. They're able to make that trade for Drew Holiday a few years ago to put them over the top. They are solid defensively. They, again, are built soundly. The Celtics have a great one-two punch in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Both drafted, both developed. Marcus Smart, tremendous defender. Robert Williams down low is really damn good when he's on the court. A lot of those guys, all those guys, grown, drafted, developed in the Celtics organization. You look at the Warriors. Again, they did a lot of that. Even now, with the new wave of players like Jordan Poole. Who Jordan Poole, whether it was whether he's filling for Klay Thompson early in the year, or whether now he's filling for Seth Curry late in the year, he's been tremendous this season. That's been a guy that was drafted and developed by the Warriors. The Mavericks... Obviously, they have done a good job as well putting uh, or getting Luka and developing his game and, and building a team around him that is competitive. The Heat, whether it's you know, more through free and team trades by getting Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry, but they have built themselves a nice nucleus as well. All these teams that are in contention, all these teams that are top of the East, top of the West, all have the same thing in common. They are built organically. They have deep teams. They have multiple contributors. They are good on the defensive end of the floor. They're not relying on one or two players. They didn't sell the farm, sell the draft picks, eat up all their cap room to basically make a trade for one or two players. They have done so in a way that is sustainable. They didn't go from the the, the basement to the penthouse in terms of just signing two free agents, making one big trade, and selling the farm for two or three guys and hoping they can carry them. I think... The days of relying on one to two players to carry your team are over. Which is why I think right now super teams will become less and less prevalent in the NBA. It's a copycat league just like every other sports league is. And when I just list the teams that are in contention that are having some of the best seasons, again, Celtics, Bucks, uh, Grizzlies, Suns, they are all built in the same similar fashion. Homegrown, developed talent. And then when you need to make that move, when the talent is there ready to win, that's when you make that plunge in free agency to make that piece, you know, get that piece that puts you over the top. That's when you splurge in free agency to get one or two guys that really, you know, round out the team. And whether it's an extra star or whether it's, you know, a really good role player or wing player to kind of really solidify your team. That to me is the way you build teams moving forward. I think that's going to be the reason now why super teams, I think, will become less and less popular and less and less um as like the key strategy moving forward. I think we are starting to see now with the NBA kind of shifting um, to less and less super teams, which I think is a very good thing for the NBA. 
It's a really good thing. It then keeps fans engaged longer because now it's easier to root for players because you see them. They're on the teams longer. Not everyone is jumping around as much. I do think now the new wave of the NBA is going to be keeping your guys there, developing, and almost getting to the point, kind of like NFL quarterbacks, where if you don't if you don't draft that star, you kind of keep on going over and over and over again. That, to me, is the way that you're going to be able to build your team moving forward is by drafting that star player, that John Morant, that Devin Booker, that Giannis Antetokounmpo. You may not say it right away, but it's about your team being able to develop that player in order to kind of have him take over the team. That, to me, is the wave of the future in the NBA. Speaking of the wave of the future, I think one team right now that is not going forward into the future, not building their team in a sustainable way, is the Los Angeles Lakers. There's rumors, but there's been nothing official, but there are rumors that Frank Vogel is going to be fired. How the Lakers handled this moment, I think, goes to show you they are not having success again in the LeBron James era. We'll discuss why that is when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show on this Monday morning. The NBA season is officially in the books. And man, the Los Angeles Lakers, they have obviously been in the news a ton this year, starting with the Russell Westbrook trade that for the most part, one of the few times in society, everyone was in agreement. Horrible move, not going to work out, as we know. I mean, it didn't work out, but I don't think anyone saw it working out as futilely as it did uh, this season where they didn't make the playing tournament. Absolutely crazy. But now this latest, um, really the, the, the finishing touch, really the bow if you want on top of this season for the Lakers is now the job status and the questions surrounding Frank Vogel and his future. We'll get to that in a second. As a reminder, the 10 o'clock hour is always sponsored by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions. So make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark herself. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. So last night, the Lakers played their season finale against the Nuggets. It was a fun, entertaining, back-and-forth game. All the reserves the Lakers are playing, they ended up beating the Nuggets in overtime. As soon as the game ends, not that this was a shocking tweet per se, we kind of all saw this coming the last few weeks, but Adrian Wojnarowski, right, of ESPN, the tremendous NBA insider, basically tweets, the Lakers are expected to move on from Frank Vogel. A decision by the team is expected to come as soon as Monday. Now, a tweet that, again, most people saw coming because this Lakers season has been a disaster, and there were reports earlier in the year, in like December, that Frank Vogel was basically coaching for his job. I forget the team they're playing that night, but it's like one of those games where it's like, if Frank Vogel loses this game tonight, he's probably fired. So we have been, you know, we have known that Frank Vogel's job security for a while has been in jeopardy, and with the way this season has gone, how big of a disaster it's been, even though it's not his fault. We kind of knew, all right, his job was probably going to be on the line. He was probably going to be the first domino fall at the end of the season. So Woj tweets that. But the only issue is, in classic Laker fashion, Frank Vogel didn't even speak at his press conference yet. The game ends, the tweet goes out. Frank has yet to meet with the media. 
He's like the locker room talking to his guys after the, the final game of the year, and all of a sudden there are reports out that he is going to get fired. So he goes to the to the you know the press conference after the game, is basically asked by the reporters, uh, Frank, there's a report here, Woj is saying you're fired. Have you heard anything? And he goes, I haven't heard bleep. And basically, that's kind of it. But this this poor mishandling of Frank Vogel's job security, this awful timing by again with the Lakers, goes to show you they are not winning another title again in LeBron James's time in LA, which goes back to what we talked about right here on this show on Thursday. And we brought it up even before that, weeks before, the Lakers have to trade LeBron James. They have no clue what they're doing. They have no direction of what they want to be as a franchise. They need to right now cut bait and basically hit the reset button and get an identity for this team. They have no clue what they're doing. I get, right, it's always kind of common um, practice to blame the coach, and especially when LeBron James is on your team. Usually the first is always, you know, the coach was the first person to go. Ask David Blatt in Cleveland the second time LeBron was there where he got him fired after a year plus despite making the finals. Ask Eric Spolstra in Miami, where if it wasn't for Pat Riley and his strong will, Eric Spolstra would have been fired like five games into the season. In LeBron's first year in Miami, they did not get along, and LeBron did not respect Eric Spolstra at first. So usually, right, the coach is always the first one to be blamed for what is a quote-unquote down year for LeBron and his team. But the Lakers, again, don't really know what they're doing because not only I think they're making the mistake in firing Frank Vogel because there is, let's say, a laundry list of issues. Now, what went wrong with the Lakers this year? Frank Vogel is not in the top 10. Reasons of why the Lakers missed the playing tournament this year and had one of the worst seasons and the most, you know, biggest failure of a regular season in NBA history. Frank Vogel's not even in the, in the top 10 reasons why this Lakers team has absolutely underperformed to every single standard set for them. But yet, he is the first domino to fall. And again, the Lakers go about things the wrong way in leaking out to Woj, hey, we're going to fire Frank Vogel. Oh yeah, but we're going to leak it out well before he's even talking in his press conference, and now we're forcing him to answer questions about his job security and whether he's been told if he's fired or not. Think about how backwards that is. But this is why going forward here, this shows the Lakers have no chance of winning. If you are another head coach, if you are, let's say, Quinn Snyder in Utah, if you are even Ty Lue in LA, right, right next door in the same building, coaching the Clippers, if you are, I don't know, Mike D'Antoni or whoever, Doc Rivers even, although Doc, I think, will get fired himself in Philly, so maybe he'll run he'll run back to LA and be a bad job for the, or a bad time for the Lakers. But either way, whatever head coaching candidate, let's say the Lakers have their eye on and they circle number one, why the hell would you want to come to the Lakers? Why would you want to go to this dumpster fire right now where this team is capped out where you have LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook. Those three guys being on the roster give you no flexibility to do anything else with the roster. If you trade Russell Westbrook, you're not really giving yourself any relief because all you're doing is taking back other bad contracts. So whether it's Russell Westbrook, whether you swap him out with John Wall, nothing's really going to change. You're not giving yourself really any flexibility. Anthony Davis is, is I don't think, really tradable uh, because of his contract and because of his injury history. LeBron James is really the only guy that you have some value with. So I, even if you do, let's say you do trade LeBron. You do listen to what I've been saying you trade him. We're going to rebuild. So now you're going to blow this team up and you're going to be a head coach that's in demand. 
you're, you're going to either go to a team in the Lakers that has no flexibility and you're going to have to return LeBron, AD, and Russ and run it back next year and you saw the head coach get fired for failing miserably with the squad and you're going to know there's no uh, upgrades coming. But there's nothing they can do with the bench. They can swap out some of the faces like Carmelo Anthony and Dwight Howard. You're going to swap out for different role players, but because of the money and the cap you're in, you're not getting any better players, number one. Um, you're not getting any you know healthier because, as we know, LeBron James in three of his four years in LA has missed 25 or more games. Um, so you can't rely on LeBron James to be out there for 65, 70 games anymore. Anthony Davis, as we know, gets hurt you know walking out of bed uh, and getting up in the morning. So you're going to run this three back without any real confidence that they're going to stay healthy enough to succeed. Or you're going to blow it up and you're going to inherit a team that is going to be insanely bad because they have no depth, they have no draft picks, and you're going to try to recoup some of that, but it's going to be nowhere near still to the magnitude of what you need. So it's going to be very ugly in LA next year whether they decide to blow it up or whether they decide to run it back. And now you're going to see how this organization led by Jeannie Buss, led by Rob Palenka, led by Kurt Rambis. And you're going to see how they have treated Frank Vogel this year. You're going to say, you know what? That's the job I want. That's the job for me. In a loaded Western Conference that is filled with young, rising teams, you're going to go take on the old heads. You're going to go take on a job if you're a head coach in demand or you're an assistant coach on the rise that has gotten to be the next hotshot. You're really going to go to LA, either take over the oldest roster in the NBA Take over what I think, even if they return everyone, the, at best, the seventh best team in the NBA, you're going to take that over, dealing with LeBron James and all his drama. Then he brings dealing with him as a player. Or you're going to take over a team in a rebuild that is going to blow it up, basically detonate the entire team and start over. And you're going to feel confident and you're going to be able to see the other side of that rebuild? Absolutely not. This job is not attractive for anybody. Again, the only person that might be running there could be Doc Rivers because I think he's going to get fired in Philly and he loves LA. Other than that, if you're Quinn Snyder, yeah, things could get a little rough in Utah. You know, maybe this year, depending on what happens to the Jazz, they get bounced in the first round by even a Luka-less Mavericks team or a banged-up Luka Doncic taken on, you know, in that first round and he eliminates the Jazz early on. Maybe you trade Don Mitchell. I don't know if they blow it up with Rudy Gobert. Changes could be coming to Utah. But if you're uh, Quinn Snyder, you've been rumored to be Pop's replacement in San Antonio. You are a head coach. And let's say if you wanted to leave or wanted to explore somewhere else, you'd be in demand and you'd be scooped up by 20 out of 30 teams. Even maybe 25 out of 30 teams would fire their head coach to hire you. So you are not going to go to LA to take over that dumpster fire and, and try to lead this team to a title because you, you're not stupid. You see what's going on. You see how they are treating one of their own and Frank Vogel, a guy who won a title, mind you, two years ago. It's not like Frank Vogel can't coach. It's not like he has been the biggest reason for this uh, Lakers collapse. It's not like he has never won a championship in his career. He won a title two years ago. Say what you want about the bubble and the asterisk there. I don't believe in the asterisk personally as a uh, for the bubble. But either way, the guy won a title. The guy has showed you he can coach a championship team. And two years later, he is now getting fired, but getting fired to the point of embarrassment where he's fielding questions of whether he was fired or not, whether Rob Palenka or Jeannie Buss called him to say that he's been fired. He is answering those questions in the last game of the season. So again, I ask you, if you are a head coach that is in demand, that is very good at what they do, 
Why the hell would you go to the Lakers? So now all LA is doing and this latest fiasco with their head coach is setting themselves up to fail more because now let's say let's say they have a, a wish list of one, two, and three. Well, one, two, and three should be nowhere near interested in, in the Lakers because if they're on the Lakers, if they're high in the Lakers list, they're probably high in other teams' list as well. And there are, I'd argue, a lot better landing spots than right now LA. LA is a dead end. Because even if you run it back, I don't think you have a chance to win. And again, as we saw, the coach is always the one to take the fall in a LeBron James-led team. Fair or not. And if they blow it up, I don't trust right now the Lakers front office to give the patience needed to see the other side of rebuild. Let's say if you're a Quinn Snyder and you say, you know what, I want to start over. The Lakers are blowing up. I'll go to LA and I'll turn, you know, I'll take this team from ashes and rise them up out of the ground. You're going to need time for that. And you cannot right now trust Jeannie Buss, Rob Plinka, Kurt Rambis to give you the leash, give you the rope in order to take this team and start to build it back up again. The Lakers are not going to be okay with two or three seasons of not even being competitive in a row. They're not going to do it. I don't care who their coach is. So you can't trust right now this front office. You can't trust the direction they're in. And frankly, that's a scarier part. Speaking of direction, I don't even think the Lakers know what direction they want to go in. I don't think they have any idea what direction they want to be, what their identity is, who they want to build around. And that is scary as well when you don't have a, a true identity for your team. LeBron James is older. He has a chance to sign an extension. I think, again, he's leaving in two years anyway. I think he's going to play the son, Bronny. Um, and the odds of the Lakers being one of the, the one team out of 30 to sign Bronny, when I think every team literally would sign him or draft him in order to get LeBron in their team. I think uh, the Lakers, it's very slim to none that they get Bronny. So I think LeBron James is leaving. And what their plan is from now until then, there is no plan. That has been the biggest knock so far of the Genie Bus ownership of LA is that they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. They don't have a plan of action. They don't have a one, three, five, ten year plan of how they want to compete every single year. They don't. Right now, they are a rudderless ship. Whether it's the handling of Frank Vogel, whether it's the entire Magic Johnson fiasco, whether it's hiring Rob Palenka, whether it's trying to figure out with the Russell Westbrook trade where they're going and how they're trying to build their team, this team has no clue what they're doing. So if you are any coach right now with any sort of juice, why the hell would you go to LA? You wouldn't. You absolutely would not. And that's why this handling of Frank Vogel's future has just hurt the Lakers more than helped him. No coach sees what Frank Vogel is going through. No coach sees Frank Vogel being left out to dry by his own organization after winning a title two years ago and having to field questions after the last game of the season of whether he's been told if he's been fired or not and saying, that's where I want to coach. That's a team I want to, you know, go, uh, go coach and go lead to a title. That's a team I want to hitch my wagon to for the future. You can't trust them. Whether it's a rebuild, you can't trust you're going to get the patience to see the other side. Whether it's running this team back, you can't trust that the Lakers know what the hell they're doing. And you can't trust that if they do run it back, and let's say you make the playing tournament next year, but you're not really a threat to win, you get bounced in the first or second round, you can't trust that you will be back after one season. 
That lack of trust, that lack of direction from the Lakers front office is, again, the latest reason why there is no shot in hell LeBron James is winning another title in LA. And again, is the latest reason why the Lakers, I think, need to trade LeBron James. While you're trying to figure it out, don't allow the best asset on your team. Don't allow the only guy that you can move to actually start to build up your depleted G League, your depleted draft picks, and your depleted salary cap. Don't allow that one guy to basically rot in LA. Because that's what LeBron James would be doing if he stayed the next few years. Because right now, the Lakers have no clue what they're doing. No clue the direction they want to head into. And basically, flying by the seat of their pants. That is never good for any organization. And that is not good for any head coach that is going to uh, be of interest from the Lakers to hire. This team is screwed. This team is absolutely screwed. We've been saying it all season long, and this is just the latest reason why. This is kind of the icing on top of the cake as what has been just a totally crap season. This has been a crap cake. And let's just put some icing on top of it. Well, this is it. The handling of Frank Vogel and his future. Total mess, total disaster. And it just underscores, again, why the Lakers are hopeless and you trade LeBron now because instead of letting your best asset rot away, letting him walk in free agency for nothing in a few years to go play with his son, Bronny, and then sitting there with you know, your, your hands empty going, what the hell do we do now? Recoup your losses, start to build some depth, and start to at least get some young guys in there that you can try to mold and shape your organization with for the future. So the Lakers are going to fire Frank Vogel. It's going to happen. They've handled it terribly so far. It's been in a total embarrassment. And I think it just underscores why whatever head coach on the top of their list, cross him off because he has no interest. The second name on the list, cross him off. He has no interest. The third name on the Lakers list, cross him off, no interest. Any head coach that has dreams of winning a title, any head coach that has dreams of being with the team for more than two years is not going to L.A. The Lakers did this to themselves. Unbelievable. So if we get any updates between now and the end of the show, it is 719 on the East Coast, uh, on the West Coast. So see if the Lakers have finally made a decision between now and 11 a.m. If we get any more updates, we will keep you updated. But as right now, as of right now, Frank Vogel is still hired by the Lakers. But it seems like just a matter of time before that is official. And he is a free agent coach. So when we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, the NBA playoffs are starting. We got five players that I trust the most heading to the playoffs. I'll tell you who those five players are when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So I'll get to my top five trustworthy players in the NBA playoffs here in a second. But I just want to mention this on the heels and, you know, on the uh, on the day after Scotty Scheffler wins the Masters yesterday. Congrats to Scotty's first career green jacket. I saw this going around Twitter and I thought it was very interesting. So there was a few tweets yesterday asking as Scotty Scheffler was uh, walking up the eight or going to the 18th tee. Right, he was up by five strokes. He was at 12 under. Uh, the second closest was Rory McIlroy, who was five under. So a massive lead um, for Scotty. And basically, the only goal is, hey, just don't screw this up, right? 
Well, I saw a few tweets asking if we, if me and you, right, if us, the normal, just regular person, traded spots with Scotty Scheffler for that 18th hole, could we finish off the Masters and win? So basically, on the 18th, it's a par 4. Could we just not get a 10? Even at least if you get a 9, that's five strokes over. At least it still ties you with Rory. You're going to a playoff. Could you just avoid getting a 10 on the final hole of the Masters up by 5? And... I thought about this long and hard. My initial answer was no, absolutely not. But then I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? I think I can absolutely do it. I think I can absolutely get an eight on uh, the 18th hole at the Masters to win the tournament when you're up by five strokes going to the final hole. It's a par four. And here's why my answer is yes. Number one, I'm going very unconventional. From the tee, there's only one one club I, I trust. I'm not a very good golfer, to be completely honest. There's one club that I can hit consistently and I feel the most confident in. That's a pitching wedge. That's a pitching wedge. That's it. So you know what I would do? I'd tee it up. I would go pitching wedge right off the tee. Especially on 18-2 if you watch. It's pretty narrow to start. I have a, I'm have a lefty. I have a horrible slice from the right to the left. So I know if I hit driver, three wood, five wood, anything, I'm slicing, I'm in the pine straw, and I'm in big trouble. But I know, for the most part, I can hit my pitching wedge straight. I'll hit it good. And I'll hit it about, I don't know, 100, 110 yards, let's say. 110, 120. So we cut that down the middle. Let's say if I just go 115, 115, 115, 115. All right, I'm, you know, I'm right there by the green. I trust myself to then chip it up and maybe three putt and get the man, you know, get the green jacket. I do think it is it is possible going to the final hole up by five strokes. If we, for whatever reason, had rules are rules and we just got transported into Scotty Scheffler's body, I do think with a five-stroke lead in the final hole at the Masters, I would be able to finish up the job and not blow the lead. I would just go pitching wedge, 60-degree putter. I mean, like, a, you know, like you're playing at a par three course, a little pitch and putt. I would not trust myself with anything uh, that's, you know, that's a wood. Absolutely not. I'm not even trusting myself with a, with a five iron. I'm keeping it simple. I am playing it smart. Pitching wedge, pitching wedge, pitching wedge. We'll see where I am. Anything, uh, you know, maybe under 80 yards, I'll take out a 60 degree, try to chip it up there, just get it somewhere on the green, and then just putt my way close. I think it's it's very realistic. If one of us was thrown into Scotty Scheffler's shoes on 18, we could finish the job. Speaking of finishing the job, I was listening to Ryan Hickey right here on CBS Sports Radio. Or CBS Sports Radio, holy cow. I hosted the other day on CBS Sports Radio. I still have that in my brain. Listening to Ryan Hickey right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We are entering the NBA postseason. And with the NBA postseason, as we know, there's a lot of players that play well in the regular season that struggle in the playoffs, right? The playoffs are a different game. Not only is the intensity ratcheted up, is the pressure ratcheted up, and obviously the stakes higher than anything else in the regular season, the way the game is played is also different. There's less transition offense. There's more half-court sets. The defense, obviously, is more intense. The schemes to slow down players are more intense. You really got to trust some of these guys' playoff time um, because, as we know, there are plenty of players, not to pick on them, but we're going to do it again in James Harden, that can light it up in the regular season, that consistently struggle in the postseason. So as we enter the playoffs, I want to give you my top five players I trust in the postseason. I know no matter the score, no matter the team, no matter the defense, no matter the situation, this player is going to come up and play big. 
whether their team wins or loses, I know for a fact I can count on them to play well and put up another big performance. So you go from five to one here of the five players I trust the most in this postseason. Number five, I have Steph Curry. Now, before I even... I mean, look, I don't have to explain why he's on this list. You know why Steph Curry's on this, uh, on this list. We've seen him t- kill in the playoffs. He's been tremendous. So I'm not going to waste my time here explaining why Steph Curry should be trusted in the postseason. What I am going to explain, though, are two reasons why he's not higher in the list. Right? Number five is pretty low for Steph Curry and what he's been able to accomplish in the past and how good of a player he is. But there's two reasons why I have four other players ranked higher than Steph Curry entering this postseason. One reason is health. The other reason is three-point shooting. Right right now, Steph Curry is not healthy. Steve Kerr said yesterday that it's coming down to the wire uh, with Steph if he's going to be ready to play uh, game one of the the playoffs or not. So he suffered that foot sprain um, against, uh, I believe it was against the Celtics a few weeks ago. He's missed the last 11 games of the regular season with that foot sprain. And it was believed, at least when he got hurt, there was hope he'd be ready for the postseason. Well, right now, Steve Kerr just said yesterday that it's basically up in the air. It's basically a toss of whether Steph is going to be ready. So that foot sprain, even when he returns, is going to hamper Steph and I think take a little bit away from what his game is. Now, he's still going to be a great player, don't get me wrong, but he's not going to be fully healthy. He's still going to be dealing with a little bit of a foot injury, which maybe could slow him down on his cuts in terms of getting open. Maybe could hurt his... Uh, his jump a little bit when he's shooting from three. Um, so I'm a little concerned about Steph's foot injury heading into the postseason. But also, too, like let's just call for what it is. We got to discuss some of Steph's struggles this season. He got off to an insanely hot start to the year, right? He, he, he broke the three-point record. He was hitting threes left and right. He was insane. But really, for the last three quarters of the season, he's really cooled off, especially from three. This season, Steph Curry is shooting 38% from three. Steph Curry, sub 40%. That is literally, if you, if you take away uh, the season a few years ago when he played two games and got hurt and missed basically the entire season, if you look at Steph Curry and his career playing a full season, the 38% from three is the lowest career free goal percentage from three of Steph's career. And I don't think it's going to magically change come playoff time. I don't think all of a sudden a switch is going to be flipped and all of a sudden he's going to be back shooting to 43, 44, 45% from three. I think those struggles we saw in the regular season will carry over into the postseason. And then again, you add on his struggles from three on top of now him dealing with a foot sprain that's going to continue to linger into the postseason. Steph Curry's still going to be great. Steph Curry is not going to be, you know, all of a sudden this pedestrian player come the postseason. He is going to play some great basketball. But with that said... I don't think he's going to be the lights-out shooter we have been accustomed to seeing in the postseason. I think he's going to be limited a little bit. And for me, I still trust him. I still respect him. I still think Steph's going to show out and play well. But I just don't think he'll be playing better uh, and playing at his best like we've seen. So that's why, for me, he's still number five. He's on the list. You absolutely have to trust Steph Curry come postseason time. But I'm a little concerned about his health. I'm a little concerned that his field goal percentage from three has been the lowest of its career. I don't think it's going to change anytime, anytime soon. But like I said... I still do, you know, expect a lot from him. He's not going to stink. He's not going to revert back to one of the worst players in the NBA. So he's number five on my list. Number four on my list, again, this player would be higher, but injuries are now a concern, is Luka Doncic. Now, we know in Luka's short career, he's already been one of the clutchest players in the playoffs since he's come into the league. He was unconscious in the bubble. Right? That's the Clippers. 
He had that incredible, epic buzzer beater against uh, LA in game four to tie it up, uh, tie up that series 2-2. As we know, the Clippers did eventually go on to win that series. But Luka Doncic was incredible. He put up big game after big game after big game against the Clippers. Now, it's one thing to go off in the bubble because we have seen players explode in the bubble, like Michael Porter Jr. be unstoppable and then be unable to back it up. Be unable to follow up that performance with another great performance after. The Heat are an example as a team where they went to the finals in the bubble and last year they got swept in the first round by the, by the Bucks. But Luka has been one of those players that went off in the bubble has been able to back it up even more the following year. Now, they lost. They played the Clippers. They went seven games and lost. But last year, I know it was only seven games. He did uh, average the most points per game of anyone in the playoffs, 35.7. So again... Even though it was the same opponent, and even though it was only one series, Luka Doncic took what you know he did in the bubble and translated it to the next season and still played really well. Now, the Mavericks obviously couldn't finish a job in the first round, but at least trust Luka to come out uh, against the Jazz and play really damn good. He is always one of those players that rises up to the moment, and there's really no doubt uh, about his play and if he's going to show up or not. The only question is going to be now, is he going to be healthy enough? Similar to Steph, we're talking about Steph Curry and his foot sprain limiting him. Last night, Luka Doncic suffered what is believed to be a calf strain. We have zero clue about the severity. There's going to be more details put out today. But it is not good news that basically he had to be kind of carried off and could not put any weight on his calf yesterday. The, you know, again, it's early speculation, but there's been some reports that, hey, a calf strain usually out two to three weeks. Well, that would not be good. That's basically the entire first round of the playoffs against the Jazz for the for the Mavericks. So we'll see if Luka's even going to be able to play. And that's part of the reason why he's not higher on this list. I think he has earned the respect to be one of the most trusted players in the playoffs. But because of this calf strain now, we don't know what his availability is going to be, if he's going to even be able to play. So I'll give Luka the respect and put him on the list. I have him at number four right now. But this calf strain really does throw a huge, huge wrench into the Mavs' plans this postseason. So in terms of the five most trustworthy players, I think you could trust going to the playoffs. I have Steph at five, Luka four. Joel Embiid, to me, is number three. He has taken his game this season to the absolute next level, put himself in square position to win his first MVP award. And I think he is going to carry over what he did in the regular season and carry it over into the postseason. He's won the scoring title of the season. He's averaged 30.6 points per game, first center to win since Shaq uh, just about two decades ago. But there's two things I like right now for Embiid going into the postseason, why I have number three on my list in terms of trustworthy players. I like his, where his health's at. I like that he's been productive this season despite really not having consistent help around him. So when we look at his health, right, the the questions with Embiid have never been about his talent. We know Joel Embiid can be one of the best players in the NBA. This year he's putting it all together and he's probably either going to finish first or second in the MVP voting. The questions are never about his talent. The questions are always about his health. He's always kind of had some sort of injury nagging on him or impacting his play, especially late in the season because of all the wear and tear his body takes. Just look at last year. Last year, he was playing some tremendous basketball, but he was laboring throughout the playoffs when he suffered that knee injury, when he suffered that meniscus injury. There were times last year where you forgot all about the meniscus injury. He looked tremendous. Like, oh my God, this guy's playing great. Meniscus, what? And there are other times where he is laboring, where even late in the Hawks series, I believe it was game six, there was a layup that he missed late in the game that could have sent the game to overtime and uh, could have given the Sixers the lead. He missed it short. 
I think that is directly impacted by that meniscus injury that he looked like he was laboring with late in that game. So it popped up throughout the postseason. It limited his avail- uh, his productivity, especially down low in terms of jumping, in terms of going to the rim and driving. Whereas this season, he is basically the healthiest he's been in his career heading to the playoffs. He's playing great. He's healthy. There's really nothing that is injury-wise nagging him or slowing him down. I love where his, where his health is at. I don't think many defenses are slowing him down. Really, the only thing that's slowing Joel Embiid down is his health. And this year, it is basically at 100%. I love that about Embiid going to the playoffs. And not to mention, I love the fact that he has been consistently productive this entire season with really nothing around him. Ben Simmons, his supposed to be number two player in the NBA, has missed the entire season. Right, He was supposed to be the one-two punch. He's supposed to be that two to Joel Embiid's number one. He's been able to win the scoring title and have an MVP type season, and beat has, without that number two in the court in Ben Simmons. He missed the entire year. Then, you had Harden there, you know, in Philly for about two months. But the thing that's encouraging, at least that you can rely on uh, for Embiid, is that even though Harden's been kind of up and down so far in his two months in Philly, I don't expect James Harden to play well whatsoever in the playoffs. I really don't. Historically, he's never played well in the postseason. I don't think that's going to change now. He has been someone who routinely shrinks in the postseason, not plays better. But Embiid, despite that, doesn't need James Harden to play well in order for him to play well. Again, he has played this entire season basically almost by himself. I know Harden's been there the last two months, and that has changed a little bit, but he has been productive whether Harden's been in the lineup or not, and whether, obviously, Ben Simmons missed the entire year. He's been productive, Embiid has, no matter who's on the floor. I love that. So, whether Harden plays well or not, that's not going to impact his play in the postseason. I don't think the Sixers are going to go far in the playoffs. I really don't. I think they're actually going to lose in the first round to the Raptors. I I really do. But it's not going to be because of Embiid. Their struggles are not going to be because of Joel Embiid's play. So I have him number three in terms of teams and players you can trust the most. Number two, I have Kevin Durant. I mean, kind of like Steph Curry. What else do I got to say? Kevin Durant is a stone cold killer. And I would say this. I don't think there's another player right now I'd want taking the final shot for my team than Kevin Durant. He's someone who can hit a shot from anywhere. He can drive beyond guardable. He can hit a mid-range as good as Chris Paul. He hits the three like it's, you know, Steph Curry. He is incredible right now playing great on all three levels. I mean, quietly, quietly. Except for, I just, I mean, personally, I just realized this when I was looking up the numbers. He just missed hitting the 50-40-90 club this season. 50% from the field, 40% from three, 90% from the free throw line. He is at 39% from three. He's over 50% from the field this year, over 90% from the line. He has been one of the most consistent scorers this all uh, this entire season. Oh yeah, by the way, he did so averaging 30.1 points per game. Obviously, the injuries this year have been a concern, but he's going in healthy. His postseason success speaks for itself. Two-time finals, uh, two-time finals champ, two-time finals MVP. Last year, even though they lost in the second round of the playoffs, he carried that beleaguered Nets team and almost single-handedly uh, had them beat the Bucks. Right? We remember that incredible Game Five where he won the game by himself. Game Seven, his foot was on the line to send him to the playoffs. If the foot was a, if he had a size 12, size 13, instead of a size 16. The Nets are in the Eastern Conference Finals and maybe in the Finals and maybe they win a championship. Who knows? But Kevin Durant by himself carried that beleaguered Nets team to almost taking down the eventual champs on the Bucks. Similar to the Sixers, I don't think the Nets are going far in the playoffs. I'm picking the Celtics to beat them in the first round. But what I do know 
what I absolutely know for a fact is that the Nets are not losing because of Kevin Durant. He is going to be playing his best basketball. The issue is around the Nets, I don't trust them to play defense or get consistent shots. And this is a you know this is a team that yesterday Kyrie and Katie combined for 55 points and barely had to hold on to beat the Pacers. This is a team that last week Kevin Durant dropped 55 against the Hawks and they lost. I know Kevin Durant's going to play his best basketball. My questions are with the rest of the team, but I absolutely trust Kevin Durant come playoff time to be one of the best players in the postseason for sure. But he's not my number one. In terms of the five most trustworthy players in the NBA, Steph 5, Luka 4, Embiid 3, Durant 2, the player I trust the most heading to this postseason, Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's dominant, he's confident, and right now he is unstoppable. He is someone that not only fills up the stat sheet, he does so in clutch moments. You look at last year, what he did on the way to carrying the uh, the Bucks to the to the championship. He averaged 30.2 points per game in last year's postseason. Drew Holiday had contributions throughout the way. Chris Middleton had important contributions throughout the way. Uh, throughout the way. But by far the most consistent player the Bucks had in the postseason, by far the player they leaned on and relied on the most in that postseason to get them the ring was Giannis. We, you know, go back to Game Six of the Finals, clincher. What did he do? 50 points, insanely efficient, 16-25 shooting, and maybe equally as impressive or most impressive, he was 17 of 19 from the free throw line in the clinching game six game against the Suns to win the championship. That last thing I just said, 17 of 19 from the free throw line, is the reason why I trust them, uh, I trust uh, Giannis the most going into this postseason because he is one of those players that is able to uh, fix his weaknesses and he has gotten better. We know how dominant he is down low. We know his ability when he drives to the rim. There's no player that's stopping him from getting to the hole. But his biggest weaknesses, and we saw it even come to a head last postseason, were his free throws and his three-point shooting. All right, we all remember, especially the Nets in round number two, were all on Giannis in terms of taking his time at the free throw line, going over the 10-second limit that he was supposed to be under, and the free throw line was a total mess. Well, this year, coming to this year after winning the finals, his three-point field goal percentage increased and his free throw percentage increased. He has made the most free throws per game on average of his entire career this season. And his shot is very confident from three that he is now taking threes late in the game with the game on the line. When they played the Nets a few weeks ago in Brooklyn, again, the Bucks won in overtime. Down by three, under a minute left, Giannis took two three-point attempts, made one to eventually tie the game. He's not shy, he's very confident, and the two biggest weaknesses of his game, he's improved upon in terms of three-point shooting and free throw percentage. I feel really damn good about Giannis this postseason. I know he's going to get it done on the defensive end of the floor. I know he's going to get it done on the offensive end of the floor. He has that championship moxie now. He, he just has that title under his belt. I think he's coming into this postseason extremely confident. I think he is going, to me, he is the most trustworthy player in this postseason. So in terms of the five players I trust the most in the playoffs, Steph Curry is number five. Luka Doncic is number four. Number three is Joel Embiid. Two is Kevin Durant. Number one is Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's going to be a lot of fun this postseason. I cannot wait for the playing tournament that starts tomorrow. It's going to be a lot of fun. Postseason starts on Thursday. So we'll have a, we'll have a bigger postseason preview come Thursday show. We'll get you set for all the first round matches. We'll have almost every matchup set. So we'll, we'll preview, you know, um, Bucks, Bill, uh, Bucks, Bulls, Jazz, um, Mavericks. We'll get you all set and ready for the postseason. That is all going to do for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. Really do appreciate everyone who tuned in on this Monday morning. 
We appreciate you starting week with us. Hopefully the weekend was enjoyable. And from this point forward, we are back on the air Thursday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Between now and then, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.